Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the voice of the Boston Red Sox, Joe Castiglione. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with the voice of the Boston Red Sox. This last year, the Red Sox celebrated him and his 40 years in the booth. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Castiglione. Joe, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I'm very fond of your family. Your brother, Aaron, even though he's... uh, with the Evil Empire is a great friend and a wonderful guy. And, uh, of course, we owe so much to your granddad who signed so many great players for our franchise as well as playing there. And this is fun for me. Now, you're to me, you're a very familiar voice. I've listened to you for years, all some of my games. So uh, it's good to catch up today, and, and uh, we'll get to more of that. First, out of the shoot, what do people recognize you most by? Name? Face or when you speak, your voice? I think uh, definitely by the voice when I speak. Sometimes, you know, they'd be in the grocery store. And, uh, um, of course, I do their commercials, too, for Shaw's and Star Markets. So that goes hand in hand. And I'll be recognized uh, by my voice when I'm at the checkout counter uh, more than anything. But, uh, you know, it's always uh, certainly complimented when people tell you, remind them of summer. That's about the best thing you can hear. Ever, people ever ask you to do their voicemails? Oh, yes. Many times. <laughs> because I remember, you know, growing up in Philly, as soon as, as, soon as cell phones came into fashion, Aaron, uh, you know, he grew up, I mean, emulating you guys. He, he wanted to talk. He wanted to be an announcer. It seemed like when he was five, six, seven years old. And Harry Callis, obviously, for us in Philadelphia, was, was a, you know, an iconic figure. But as soon as the cell phones got into, you know, kind of into circulation i remember aaron the first thing he did is get harry callis to leave his message then you know my son did the same thing brett uh, my son's a sports anchor at channel five in boston and he asked harry uh, when he was probably a teenager uh if he'd do his voicemail and harry said do you want the baseball or the football that's right because he did he did harry did nfl films as well right my son wanted the uh, frozen tundra <laughs> I had, you know who mine was? Uh, and you probably know the name. He's the PA announcer for the Phillies, Dan Baker. Oh, yes. And the jacket and tie at home plate on the field. Yeah. And he, from my childhood, you know, I could just, it just, I could shut my eyes and I can hear him announcing that Philly lineup. And then he'd always started off with, and for the Phillies. And then years later, you know, I'd go play when I was playing. Uh, it was before the new stadium, but we'd play in the vet. And the first thing I'd walk out of the field and before the game, and I'd hear his voice, and, and it just it puts you in a different in a different place. I had him do my voice spell because I, I just wanted to hear that. He's still going strong. I think he started like 1970. Yeah, I can see why. Uh, he's certainly an institution in Philadelphia, and I believe he's the only one in baseball that does the lineups that way. Almost like the old guy with the megaphone before uh, they had loudspeakers. Uh, and it's really a classic. Red Sox Nation, pretty special. What what makes it 
such a special thing, Red Sox Nation? Well, I think it's uh, geography has a lot to do with it, being a team that represents the six New England states and the mobility of people who move uh, away to different parts of the country but maintain their strong ties. A lot of it is probably because of, uh, you know, the Red Sox near misses over the years. And uh, then now the four championships in a 15-year period, uh, they certainly have been huge. But I think people's loyalty just remains so strong. And uh, I think that's a big reason why Red Sox Nation uh, has been such a bond for people. Yeah, it's it's special. I mean, growing up, it's it was very special to my family. My my grandpa, who played uh, 13 years in the big leagues, and is pretty much his whole professional career after being a player was was scouting for the Boston Red Sox. So as a kid, he'd bring back and he'd talk about. You know, we talked about a few guys off air that he had signed, but uh, you know, the big one, and you probably remember this name. I heard about this kid for years growing up. I uh, never kind of penciled out to be what Gramps thought, but he's like, Brett, I got this guy that I like. His name is Sam Horn, Sam Horn. And I heard about that. That's another vivid memory from, from my childhood, but obviously Red Sox, huge role in, in the Boone family from that standpoint, just because of Gramps and, and how close I was to him being affiliated with him for so long. Yeah, Sam Horn uh, had light tower power, no question about it. I think he still has the record for uh, most fewest games with seven home runs to start his career. Uh, he was pretty one-dimensional, uh, not much of a defensive player, and uh, but he provided a lot of power. And we still see Sam. He lives in Rhode Island. He comes to Fenway Park uh, often. But your your granddad signed so many greats, and Marty Barrett, uh, who was such a big part of our club and uh, had 24 hits in the postseason in 1986. I believe Fred Lynn. Uh, so many players from his territory in Southern California went on to excel for the Red Sox. And I'm sure he told you some great stories, too, about some of the guys he played with. Oh, yeah. He, uh, you know, I've talked about it at nauseum on, on, this, on this broadcast. And uh, I make light of it a lot because when Gramps was alive, you know, it was – Every time I'd see him, he'd have a different story about someone from his generation. And, and like I, I mentioned, Ted Williams. And, uh, but fast forwarding it, you know, to, to where I am in life now, uh, what a bunch of cool stories they were. That I think when you're young and, and you're in the moment, you're in your prime, uh, yeah, it's Gramps telling another story. But then you get out of that and you grow up a little bit and you, and you look back. Uh, it was so cool. And, and I'm so glad that I was able to hear the stories of, you know, he had the stories of riding on buses. This is before they flew. And he used to tell me the stories, how the umpires used to ride with them on the train uh, from coast to coast and, and just the relationship and how different the dynamic was and, and things they do then we would never do uh, current day, but uh, definitely a real cool insight on how that, that old school baseball really was. You know, his his time uh, stemming from the, the late 40s to, to around 1960. Yeah, I know it's it's amazing because you can really identify with that. I remember I had your granddad's uh, baseball cards when he played. I'm old enough to have been uh, collecting men that went both in a Red Sox uniform and then in the Tiger uniform. And that was a lot of fun to get the Ray Boone card. And then, of course, your dad is, uh, I believe, my age. I think we're born the same year. And... Uh, probably graduated from college the same year. So you know, we followed your family uh, all along. And 
as I said, Aaron's become a great friend. And uh, one story that uh, I always love to relate about Aaron, when I was uh, working, I was working in Cleveland at the time, I was doing some freelancing covering spring training camps for NBC Radio, and I saw this little kid at uh, a game in St. Petersburg with the Phillies doing impressions of the batting stances of the guys on the Phillies club at the time, like Pete Rose and Joe Morgan. And, of course, it was your younger brother, Aaron Boone. He's still so good at it, at doing impressions of uh, not only swings, but uh, people's voices. And uh, I think the best thing he ever does is a Joe Torre walk. He, he is. He's amazing. He's always been like that, Joe. I mean, since we were little kids, we were, we were four years apart, you know, myself being the older brother. But once in a while, I'd let Aaron tag along. You know, it, it it's awkward when you're a little kid. It's like, well, my little brother's in third grade. I'm hanging with my seventh grade buddy. So it wasn't always appropriate for him to be around. But sometimes we'd let him tag along. And he, if he, if we were playing in the game, you know, whatever we were playing at the time, whether it was pickup basketball, touch football on the side, or if if we felt the game was too physical because the because the uh, my friends were maybe too old for Aaron at that particular time. Aaron would resign himself to being, he would commentate. So he would be sit there and announce the game, a dunk ball in the garage. Aaron was on the mic and he's always been like that. He used to set up a, uh, for the Phillies games. And, and that was back in the Harry Callis and, and uh, by some, even back in those days, he would set up a field in front of the t- television that dad was playing, you know, veteran stadium. And he would do the entire game and he'd have a microphone. He's always been like that. So when he retired and went straight to the booth, that, that didn't surprise me one bit because yeah, no wonder that's something he always wanted to do. No wonder he was such a natural on ESPN. Uh, he was very good. And, uh, you know, he gets tired of managing. I'm sure he, uh, he'll be in great demand by the networks uh, to get back in that role. But he, he really is a very versatile guy and just so much fun to be around, as well as being a very good manager. Got a great temperament for it, which certainly you need today. I want to talk about Fenway Park a little bit. Uh, I had some interesting first times at Fenway Park. First hit my first home run there. Uh, I think the second game I ever played in the big league that I faced, and we had him on the podcast recently, uh, Frank Biola, and, and I told him, I said, you showed me what a real big league changeup was like. I learned that real quick. My second game at Fenway Park, I think uh, Clemens hit me in the head, and, and I didn't know what to do here. I'm a kid with three days in the big leagues, and, and I know he hit me on purpose. And I'm laying in the dirt, and I don't know what to do. So I have, I have uh, a lot of memories from Fenway Park. I was there in '03 in the booth, actually, with with Buck and McCarver when they tried that third man in the booth when when Aaron hit that home run against you guys. But um, I just want to talk about Fenway Park, how special it is to you. And uh, as a hitter, though, wasn't necessarily my favorite. I want to hear your take on Fenway Park, the historic value, um, and and getting to go to work there pretty much 81 days a year. Well, Fenway is my office, I'm proud to say, and very fortunate to say that. Uh, you know, it's still unique. There's no other park like it. The wall certainly uh, is maybe the most uh, obvious characteristic, uh, but it, it's just such a special place because of the memories, uh, because of what Bart Giamatti call the eccentric angularities, you know, the way the ball bounces and the dimensions, uh, 302 down the right field line of the pesky pole, and, of course, uh, 
the former, uh, formerly the screen where you hit some home runs, and now the monster seats. Uh, it really is a wonderful place to call your office. Uh, one of my special memories is always coming back from a trip late at night when you go back to the ballpark uh, uh, after the you the plane and take the bus to Fenway to pick up your car to drive home to sit outside and just look at uh, in the darkness and think of all the great memories that have uh, happened there, all the great players that have called that their home park or their visiting park. And it just holds so much magnetism uh, for all of us. And uh, really, it's a left-handed park. It always has been. Almost all the Red Sox batting champs, uh, at least until Wade Boggs, uh, including Wade Boggs, were left-hand hitters. Very few right-hand hitters won batting titles, I believe, until Carney Lansford and then, uh, of course, Manny Ramirez and Nomar Garcia Park on the right side. But it's always been a left-hand hitter's park. And I think it can be a danger to right-hand batters who try to pull the ball too much. And, you know, it sometimes can hurt their swings. Tony, because they've got the pesky pole. But other than pesky pole, it it's really a deep right field because it goes jet straight out. And I think right around it's 350, 360 feet, pretty much down the line. If you get five or 10 feet away from Pesky's pole. So it's much deeper to, to direct right field than most ballparks for me, especially the second half of my career. Uh, I lived hitting the ball the other way. That was my bread and butter. And I'd come to Fenway. And that's why I mentioned I didn't love Fenway that much because, man, that wall is so inviting. It's so close. You just got to flip it and you'll hit it off the wall for a double. But I think, as you were explaining, I think a lot of pitchers played into that because it was so inviting. It makes perfect sense to me that a Wade Boggs type hitter who hit the ball the other way, he just peppered that wall. And I think it really was a, a huge advantage for Wade. Not that he wasn't an unbelievable hitter. Obviously, he was. But yeah, Fenway, for me, I love the historic value. Uh, I catch myself at times sitting there. Because as you know, when, when you're playing as players, we're, we're caught in the moment so much. You know, when I was at Fenway, I didn't have time to think about how cool it was. And, and maybe that my grandfather had played here one time. I had to worry about facing Pedro tonight. I got to get that Wakefield guy tomorrow. He's going to be throwing that knuckleball. So I really didn't have time to sit there and really soak it in. I do remember uh, late in my career, and something was just came over me that, you know, this might be my last year. And I, and I was at Fenway. I made it a point that day during batting practice to go out to the wall. I had never gone out to the wall before all my years playing uh, against the Red Sox, but I did that day and I kind of did take it in that day in case it was my last time. And I kind of looked around and like you mentioned, when you pull up in the, in the, into the parking lot, the thought of all the great players in the history that, that have gone through and uh, it's still standing for a reason. Uh, pretty darn awesome. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, the pesky pole was named by Mel Parnell. He was Pesky's teammate. Johnny, uh, history later showed, hit six of his career, 17 home runs around the pesky pole in right field. But I think he hit one to win a game one nothing for Mel Parnell, who named it the pesky pole as a result. And uh, we sort of kept that tradition going. Because uh, Mel was an announcer after he was a great left-hand pitcher for the Red Sox. And... That's a great part, but you're right. It juts out quickly, and it's so tough for a left-hand pull. It's 380 to the visiting bullpen and straightaway right field. 
What's really difficult, though, is for the power hitters, the right-hand hitters who have the opposite field power, when they hit the ball to right center by the visiting, by the home bullpen in right center in April and May because it's cold, the wind knocks it down. The ball flies out of there in July and August, but it's an entirely different park uh, in the early spring. So it's uh, Fenway has a lot of unique characteristics about it. Yeah, you don't have to tell me. I know because I'd come there on my car. I hit one. If I get one to right center, I, I've got to get it. I can't. I can't hit it cheap here. I either get it all, or it's a it's a it's a long out. So uh, that's what made it really not, not my favorite yeah. ballpark playing. Um, Yankees Red Sox, and I want to get your perspective on this because for me as a, as an ex player, when I was a current player, there there was a bit of envy from the rest of of the league. That Red Sox Yankees rivalry. Is a true rivalry. I think for my opinion, and this is just going off my playing base, the only true rivalry in baseball. I think a lot are, are, are tried to be made. You know, oh, that's a big rivalry going on there. Maybe the San Francisco Giants now and the Dodgers have a rivalry. Nothing is like that Yankees-Red Sox. And I remember as players, because we, you know us, we never really care about what, what another team is doing that we're not playing that particular night. But back in my, especially the early 2000s, when that Red Sox-Yankee uh, rivalry was at its peak, it seemed like we'd go home after games on, on Sunday night and we'd go, hey, are you going to watch the Sox-Yankees tonight? It was that intriguing. Even the, the players... Talk about that rivalry a little, a little bit, and why it's so special, and, and why it is kind of the king of rivalries. Well, you're right, uh, Brad. No question about it. And it's it's ebbed and flowed. Uh, when I was a kid, and I grew up in Connecticut, much closer to New York. I was a Yankee fan. I have to admit, uh, Mel Allen was my announcing hero, and Mickey Mantle was my baseball hero. But uh, it really wasn't a rivalry then, because all the Red Sox had was Ted Williams, and then. Red Sox uh, were dominated by the Yankees in that period. I think it really gained strength in the 70s, especially when you had Fisk and Munson battling and, of course, Reggie playing in uh, the 78 playoff game. But you're right, in the early 2000s, I think it really peaked. And, uh, of course, your brother hit that home run. I always tell him i try to push it foul. <laughs> and I knew right away it was gone. It was the 11th inning, and probably the toughest call I've ever had to make. But uh, the next year, of course, coming from uh, the only team ever to come from a 3 nothing deficit in any postseason series to win the greatest comeback of all time really underscored the importance of the rivalry for the Red Sox. I think the fans uh, have really helped it continue on and on because players get there and, you know, most of them are not from Boston or New York, and it takes them a little while to realize how important uh, this is. But it's the proximity, um, and uh, quite frankly, the Yankees have dominated, uh, except for uh, the first decade of this century. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, Red Sox fans understand that, and they've always been sort of the underdog, and that drives them. Probably more a rivalry for the Red Sox fans than it is for the Yankee fans in many ways, at least up until uh, that great period of 03, 04, that time frame. I think it's uh, you've been a part of, of four World Series. You mentioned that 03 was 
you got close almost going to the World Series that year, but but Aaron hit that homer. I remember I was there. I couldn't believe he hit it. It was so bad, Joe, that series. And uh, we've talked about it before on the program. I had a talk with him the night before and kind of a big brother trying to cheer up a little brother. I come to the ballpark the next day. He's not even in the lineup. Uh, as you recall, he that was a pinch hit for him. And he came into the game in Wakefield's pitching. And then I remember thinking to myself as, as just to put myself in a hitter standpoint, because believe me, throughout my career, I've been in a lot of slumps. And I thought the last thing I want to see when I'm in a slump is, is a nasty right-hander sinking it in on my hands, throwing me breaking balls off the plate. Maybe that's the best time to, to face something that is as unconventional as a, as a Tim Field, Tim Wakefield knuckleball. Because normally we don't want to face a knuckleball. When, when we're locked in feeling good, we want that traditional right-hander with a, with a slider and a change-up. Uh, but I thought for some reason, Oh, maybe this is what he needs. Almost a, a wiffle ball game in the backyard. I remember hitting that him hitting that pitch, and I had no words. I was so happy as a brother uh, to to watch him round in the bases, and the only thing that went through my mind was that's one of the biggest homers ever hit. And I'm sitting here watching it, and and I had nothing to say. I remember they were in the truck, and you know you have the little earpiece, and. Uh, the directors are saying, Brett, what are you doing? What are you going to say? And I didn't say anything. And they said, no, that's good. That's good. More is, more is better. Or less is, less less is, is more. Better, right? And it didn't matter what they were saying to me, Joe, because, you know, first of all, I was in the booth. kind of. I was kind of torn whether I even wanted to be there or not. This is, I was in the middle of my, my baseball career. Uh, broadcasting was nothing I was looking at. But at the same time, I was just thinking, I just got to see something pretty cool. And I was so happy for my brother. Um, and then obviously for years after that, you know, it's, it's Aaron F. and Boone. And, and I know how that all goes down in, in Boston, <laughs> in, in Boston parts. But I want to talk about that 04 World Series. And you mentioned uh, being down 3-0 to the Yankees. Still to this day, one of the most impressive sporting feats I think I've ever seen in my 53 years to, to be down. I don't think people, unless you really think about it, don't know the severity of being down three Oh in a best of seven, especially against a, a team like the Yankees who had won so many championships at that point and, and was a very special team. Um, but they came back and did that. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Take me through your version. Well, we remember it lost game three, 19 to eight, and it was doom and gloom. And my only thinking at the time was, hey, uh, we're better than this. The Yankees have some holes, especially with their starting pitching and long relief, that they have some holes. Uh, we can't be swept by them. I remember Kevin Millar saying, don't let us win one. We win one. It's going to keep going and going. And, you know, we didn't give that much of a thought. But then, of course, game four, one of the, uh, I think, most memorable games in Red Sox history, down in the ninth inning, uh, Millar draws a leadoff walk from Rivera, and you know how stingy Mariano was with walks. And then Dave Roberts comes in and steals the bag to put him at second base with a tying run. Bill Miller is up, and Bill Miller is the guy that owned Mariano Rivera. He hit a three-run walk-off home run against him in July of that season. And uh, I believe hit over 400 against Rivera for his career. Not many hitters can say that. And he ripped one up the middle, and that tied the game. 
And then, of course, extra innings, uh, Poppy hit the walk-off into the bullpen. And uh, then you had a feeling, well, this is great. You, you won one game, but still, you know, no one's come back from three to zero, except uh, in other sports, in hockey, I believe, and uh, that was it. Certainly not in baseball ever, and it hasn't happened since. And then game two, the same thing. Uh, Poppy winning with a blue pit to center field in extra innings. The game went about five and a half hours. And then you had a lot of hope going back to New York, but still down three to two. Um, a couple of umpires' calls helped in game six that were very critical. Of course, they had the six umpires, and Mark Pellhorn hit a ball down the to left center field that looked like a home run to us in the booth. It would, would have been a three-run shot. The left field umpire called it in play, and fortunately, Joe West got a good look at it. This is before replay, and saw that the ball clearly hit the fan in the chest and bounced back on the field, so he ruled it a home run. Then, of course, in the eighth inning, Bronson Arroyo's pitching, Red Sox had clinging to a lead, and it looked like another horrible moment when A-Rod hit a little bleeder, and he's running down the first baseline, and Arroyo takes the throw, and a boot or rub. A-Rod gives him a karate chop, the ball's rolling down the right field line, and you throw, oh no, not another tragic Red Sox moment. Fortunately, Joe West was there uh, to rule against A-Rod. He called interference on him, and uh, the Red Sox hung out of the lead, won that game. And then, of course, in Game 7, the tone was set early. Poppy hits a first-inning home run. The second inning, Johnny Damon hits a grand slam, and the Red Sox rolled to an 11-2 win. Interesting story there, Brett. Uh, Johnny Damon had had a tough series at that point, and he was the leadoff hitter, one of the real spark plugs of the game. He's the guy, I think, he and Millar coined the club the Idiots uh, because of, uh, you know, their, their fun they had and uh, all the joy they brought to it and the way they were so loose. But Johnny really been struggling. And before that uh, sixth game, Ellis Burks, who couldn't play, was a wonderful guy, a real team leader. He had a bad knee and it turned out to be the end of his career. Jumped all over Johnny in the uh, clubhouse and said, you get down there to that batting cage and you work with Papa Jack, Ron Jackson, who was the hitting coach, and they found a little flaw. And then in game seven, Damon hits the grand slam in the second inning to give the Red Sox a comfortable lead. And then he hits another home run later in the game. I let off a World Series game with a home run and the Red Sox go on to win it all. So there were so many little things that played into uh, that great comeback and, uh, you know, they're certainly an indelible memory in my mind. I think and really most Red Sox fans who were old enough to grasp what happened. Yeah, pretty cool. And then you went on to, to sweep uh, the Cardinals in four years. So they won seven straight in that 04 season. You broke in in 83 with the uh, – with the Red Sox, he had stints with the uh, with the Indians, Cavaliers, and and the Brewers in '81, a handful of games there. Uh, but you came in with like Remy and Ojeda and, and Bruce Hurst, uh, Bogsy, and and I believe Yaz was still playing, and Jim Rice in that '83 season. But yes. you went a long time uh, before you got to this '04 and and this first World Series championship. What was that like? Uh, when when you you swept St. Louis after that unbelievable series with the Yankees, the city of Boston. Well, it, it was crazy. Uh, 
you know, St. Louis had won uh, over 100 games, I think 105, maybe even 108 that year. They were heavily favored in the World Series. And the first game, the Red Sox won, uh, I believe it was 9-8, to eight, and then took game two, went to St. Louis, and Pedro spun a beauty. Uh, and that game could have got away in the first inning. They had the bases loaded, had a base hit, and uh, Mar- uh, and uh, Manny Ramirez brought, I believe it was Larry Walker at home plate. The Red Sox went on to win that game, and then one game four with a shutout. Uh, so it was really amazing. And the Cardinal fans were so nice. My wife was in the stands, and they were so understanding because you know how nice they are in the Midwest. He said, they said, well, if, if we can't win, it's good you won, and it's been a long time. So uh, that was uh, heartwarming, certainly. But I remember flying home. The trophy was being passed around on the charter flight, and we landed about 6 a.m. in the morning and got on the buses from Logan Airport to go to Fenway, and you see all these people waving, uh, construction working workers hanging out of a uh, half-built uh, skyscrapers, waving and cheering. And it was uh, you know, about a five-mile trip to the ballpark, but uh, the exhilaration that fans felt, many of them I'm sure had been up all night, and uh, it was, I think, an example of uh, how much it meant uh, to the fans of New England to have won it that way. So that was very critical. Of course, uh, 1986 is my fourth year with the Red Sox, and we all know what happened with the Mets and the comeback in game six. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this is my fourth year. We will be back. Red Sox will be back soon in the World Series, if not next year, a year or two from now. It didn't happen for 18 years. Yeah. <laughs> until 04. <laughs> so put it in perspective and made it even more meaningful. I played for a lot of managers, a lot of general, uh, a lot of general managers, and um, there definitely is obviously an importance of, of putting together a team, putting the right guys together. Uh, there's definitely something to to being a great manager. When push comes to shove, though, as players, we're responsible for our wins and losses. You know, I, I talk about it a lot. Of, there's not too many times I've come back into the clubhouse at the end of a game with a loss and sat around with, with teammates, talked about how, how the manager really screwed that one up. I mean, I can count them probably one hand in, in my career. That was a special duo. Uh, Theo, Epstein, uh, Theo Epstein was the, the youngest general manager at the time. Uh, and Terry Francona, he, he, will, he, he will win another one in 07. How important were they at one-two combo to that franchise? Well, they're both very important to, uh... Of course, Theo was hired, I believe he was 28 in uh, 2003, uh, after Billy Bean turned down the job. I think he accepted it for about 10 hours and then turned it down. And uh, Larry Lucchino, who had mentored uh, Theo, uh, went to Theo. And uh, I know his dad told him, I was a professor of uh, creative writing at Boston University, said, be bold. And he was bold. He traded Nomar Garcia Parra in midseason who had been the face of the franchise for several years, traded him in a three-way deal with the Cubs. And uh, in Montreal, we ended up getting Orlando Cabrera, who was very steady at shortstop and had some big hits. And uh, Nomar was was injured. He had uh, some leg injuries, which uh, shortened his career. And I think that took a lot of guts to make a deal like that. And, of course, Terry Francona had been in Philadelphia – with some bad ball clubs, uh, learning the ropes, cutting his teeth, and 
he came into a situation uh, as not quite a rookie manager, but still very young, and he made the right moves. He believed in his players. He had a lot of veteran players, certainly, who uh, helped lead the club, but I think that, uh, you know, Terry knew how to step up when he had to and back off and let the players play when that was necessary, and I think all of those things really added. Those two in particular were, were quite a team during that period as they were again in 07. And then, of course, they both left after the 2011 season when the Red Sox collapsed in the final month. Been a part of four World Series championships. First one, as we mentioned, uh, the second one was was Euclid and Pedroia and Mike Lowell. Uh, 2013, uh, it was Pedroia and Ellsbury. Ortiz still a part of that one. And then 18, kind of the Mookie Betts era of, of Boston. Anyone in particular sweeter than the other or, or World Series is World Series? Well, I always like to say, Brad, it's like picking your, between your children. Who's your favorite child? You can't really do it. Uh, they all have the unique characteristics. I think all four was all about the greatest comeback of all time, winning for deceased relatives who couldn't be there because you automatically thought of people and relatives you had lost who would have enjoyed it so much. 07 was about being the best team in baseball, wire to wire. Although it almost got away in Cleveland, the Indians at the time had the Red Sox down 3-1, to one, but they rallied to win that series and then swept the Rockies. Uh, and 2013 was all about Boston Strong. I mean, this was a team that nobody expected to go very far. They finished last in 2012. Uh, they had a new manager in John Farrell, and uh, they signed some mid-tier free agents. But they all meshed together, especially after that Boston Marathon bombing. I remember when that happened, we were on the bus getting ready to go to Cleveland after the morning game. And uh, we continued to Cleveland anyway. Somehow we were able to fly. And that night, I believe 24 of the 25 players went out to dinner together. And you know that doesn't happen very often in baseball. No, very rare. And it sort of brought things together. And then these players uh, understood their role. You know, sometimes we live in our own world, and the real world is uh, out there in outer space because our baseball, we're so focused on the baseball life. But these players understood what happened. They understood the tragedies that occurred, the, the pain people suffered. They would make so many visits to hospitals nursing homes to deal with uh, those who had suffered injuries, uh, to deal with the families uh, who lost loved ones. And I think it really brought them all together. And it really was, uh, it really was divine the way that they came together and won it all with a club that was probably uh, the weakest of those four world championship teams. They had some great players, but overall, I think it, it, it was magical. And then, of course, 2018 was about 119 wins. The Rings have 119 jewels because they won 108 regular season, 11 postseason. And, you know, we quite thought, thought it was going to be a dynasty with a young star, especially uh, all the Bs, Bogarts, Benintendi, Betts. Uh, and, of course, uh, only Rafi Devers is left from that group pretty much. So uh, that, that was a, a great uh, team as well. But it was more like the 07 team that just overpowered people. But they're all different. And if I had to pick one, you know, the gun of my head, I'd say 04 because it was the first. Yeah. 
in uh, in my career, uh, the different places I went, different teams I played for, I got to be around some, some pretty pretty great announcers. David Niehaus in Seattle on on two different occasions, and you know Rick Riz was his was his counterpart. I had Marty Brenneman and Nuxie at, in Cincinnati, and, and still to this day, we've had Marty on the program. Uh, Nuxie was one of my favorite guys. I remember him. You know Joe Nuxall, if for you out Lord there listening. Hander. The old left-hander round the third, and third and, heading home. <laughs> you know, in that old Cincinnati stadium at Riverfront, you knew you knew you had a good game if Nuxie come waddling over to you with a with a half the tape recorder that he was going to, you know, he was going <clears> to <throat> he was going to fumble over getting it, getting it right on the track every single time. But you knew if Nuxie was coming, uh, you must have had a pretty good game. And we'd sit on a trunk in the back room of Bernie Stowe. Bernie was the clubhouse guy in Cincinnati for all those big red machine years. Uh, up until recently, we, you know, Bernie had passed away. But uh, I had some pretty – Jerry Coleman when I went to San Diego. I had some, some pretty cool guys uh, calling my game. On a, on a consistent basis. I'm sure he hung a star on you many times. Yeah, he hung a Man. star. But uh, <laughs> he was my first hero, by the way. I was Jerry? Up a Yankee fan. Yeah. My first game I ever went to was 1953. I give away my age. I was six at the time. And it was Jerry Coleman Day. He'd just come back from Korea. And he played against Cleveland that day. And uh, he told me in later years, I never should have started. I was weak. I weighed about 130 pounds. <laughs> I had no business being on the field, but uh, he was a wonderful guy. Great mentor to me. He was awesome. Um, for you, Joe, what makes a great broadcaster? Well, I think in baseball, uh, Brett, the first thing you have to have is trust. Your audience has to believe what you say. You need the credibility. They have to look at you as a friend, uh, not as a critic of the team, um, but not as an excuse maker or a houseman either. You have to be honest in your description. And I think you have to be warm. You have to be consistent. Uh, shtick is fun, but you can't do shtick every day when you do 162 games. You have to be consistent and reliable. And I think that's what uh, really, when you're doing a, a local team, uh, makes it more fun. Now, people tell me, we can tell whether the Red Sox are winning or losing by the tone of your voice. I take that as a compliment. It would not be a compliment were I doing a network broadcast. But there's no question I want the Red Sox to win. I don't root. I don't say we don't play for the club. I'm not even on their payroll. We work for the radio network. But I think that uh, the trust factor is is the most critical thing in the consistency. You also teach broadcasting. That's that's interesting to me. What what are the basic fundamentals you're going to give to a new student? Well, I think number one is preparation. Uh, getting Doing your homework, knowing the teams, knowing the players, knowing the rules of the game, certainly. You can lose your credibility in a hurry if you don't know the rules of the game. And uh, being accurate. I think that's what you try to stress. And, you know, I had some great students. I did 29 years at Northeastern and a dozen at the Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire. And I'm very proud that Don Orsillo, now the longtime TV voice of San Diego Padres, was in, in our class, um, along with Leslie Sterling, who became the first female public address announcer in the American League. 
for the Red Sox. She left for a higher calling to become an Episcopal priest. And we had a lot of students, too, who just wanted an easy grade and have some fun and have class at Fenway Park. I'd take the class to Fenway Park in November. I made here from executives. And sometimes they'd have uh, lunch with Lou Gorman when he was the general manager, a wonderful guy. Uh, so they had some some perks. Uh, but it was a lot of fun and to give back, you know, to uh, kids and hopefully some of them took those lessons and, and went on to a career in the industry. Most did not, of course, because it's it's a select industry. But it was a lot of fun to be able to do that and to give back a little bit. You mentioned Jerry Coleman. Uh, Joe Castiglione's some of your favorite announcers, guys you like listening. Well, I love Mal Allen. He was my first hero because, as I said, I grew up a Yankee fan. The Ballantine Blast, the White Owl Wallop. And he just had such a big, booming voice and uh, had such great command of the language, was such a wonderful storyteller. And, you know, I certainly never had his pipes. Uh, I liked the stories, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, he, he taught you how to fit him in between pitches. And then uh, I think when I when I became a little bit older, and Mel had uh, of this week in baseball, wasn't doing play-by-play in those days, uh, Ken Coleman was my mentor when I came to Boston. Ken took me under his wing. He was a basic basic reason why I was hired. And I learned so much from him. He was very gracious, helped me get established. Because it's tough to get uh, accepted in Boston. You know, New Englanders are pretty tight. And uh, it can be a little bit of a closed society till you break into it. And Ken made it so much easier for me. Along with Johnny Pesky, who was doing color uh, with us at the time. And then Ernie Harwell became a very close friend a long time voice of the Tigers and the Hall of Famer. Uh, those guys really influenced me, and so did a guy named Bill O'Donnell who did Oriole games uh, with Chuck Thompson for many years. I met Bill when I was a college freshman at Colgate, and he was doing Syracuse games, and we played them in basketball. Uh, so those were the guys, I think, that really influenced me. And, of course, we all love Vince Scully so much, who was just uh, the best at weaving stories in between pitches. I don't know how he did it <laughs> But he just made it flow so smoothly. Uh, but there have been so many great ones. And the guys that do it every day for clubs, I think, uh, and so many have become very good friends, too. We have we have a small fraternity, and I think uh, it's a tight one. It's a, lot of, uh, it's a lot of pride to be part of that group. Being in this game, you've been in it now for over 40 years. Um, you know, it's been pretty much my whole life uh, from my childhood to present being being around this game and, and in it for a, for a long time. You get to meet a lot of really interesting people, not only the players that I played with, the players I played against, but from the announcers to the scouts to the uh, to just people. You get to interesting people just being in this game, being at the ballpark every day for you, being at Fenway Park every single day. Who are some of your favorite guys through the years that you've got? You know, I know a guy named T-Bone is one of your favorites. Tom Giordano, oh, yeah. famous scout for the Boston Red Sox. But who are, just in all your years at in, in Boston, who are some of your favorite guys you've come across? Yeah, T-Bone would cook Italian food for us, and uh, he would arrange dinners. He was wonderful uh, scouting for several teams. I think uh, the scouts in general, I'd love to sit with the scouts you know, during the uh, pregame meal in the media dining room because you learn so much about other teams, other players. It was a time where you're gathering information by listening to them. 
And of course, they're picking your brain too about the, your players. And that's that was always a lot of fun uh, to be in that atmosphere. I really miss that today because scouts uh, are few and far between with all the analytics in the game. We don't see the scouts nearly as much as we used to see them. So uh, I, I really do miss that part of it. But the other broadcasters, I think players too. I really enjoy being around baseball players because they're unique. Each one is unique. It's they're not cloned like they may be in other sports. You know, they're not all six seven and two hundred forty pounds, uh, blocking and tackling, uh, or seven feet tall, rebounding and blocking shots. Uh, they're all different sizes, shapes, backgrounds, um, and I, I really enjoy being with uh, players from different. Parts of the world, really. Uh, I think there have been s- just so much diversity in the game that's so important. To, and you learn so much from these different cultures. Uh, I mean, I've had many favorite players over the years. I mean, the likes of Mo Vaughn, who was very close, and uh, Pedro Martinez and Roger Clemens, uh, but also some of the journeyman players, too. Uh, Brian Dahlbach is a very close friend of mine. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr., one of my all-time favorites. Rich Hill, who's still pitching. I wish he were with us again this year. He's going to be with Pittsburgh. Oldest guy in the major leagues at 43. And uh, I I think guys like that. uh, And, of course, the coaches, too, because uh, we spent a lot of time with the coaches. You know, I think we've pretty much been in the same payroll bracket as the coaches of late. (laughs) Not the players, certainly. But, Not uh, the players. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so that's, you know, I think a, a lot of the coaches have been great friends of mine. Uh, Victor Rodriguez is now with Cleveland. And uh, my good friend Lynn Jones, who's was in Kansas City for many years, is now retired. And uh, one of my closest friends when I was in Cleveland, Andre Thornton, we maintain ties and the contact to this day. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of times – you don't. You have a lot of acquaintances in baseball, especially player to player. But I think we have a chance to bond more as friends because you know there's no competition. We're true friends. We don't. We're not competing with another player for a job or for success. Uh, and I, I just find players to be very, very interesting people. And you know, I'm I'm very happy that. And to me, the best time of the day is not so much the time on the air; it's the pregame, where you're convincing with players around the clubhouse or the batting cage or the dugout and then when you as i said earlier when you were having the, the pregame meal talking to other broadcasters and scouts it's a, such a social game brad i think that's that's what i love about it as well as the beauty and uh, the symmetry of the game yeah it is and, and you mentioned the player although i'll, I'll tell you what joe Eric, these players are getting bigger i've started to notice that i was uh, you know just being around some of the players today, it seems like when I was playing, obviously I was always height challenged for for a major league baseball player, but I never noticed it that much. You know, you know, right? Yeah, I'd get into the the uh, the elevator after the game when we were on the road. You know, starting pitchers are usually really tall. They have been uh, as long as the game's been around. It, it, there'd be six, three, six, four guys, and I'd sit there and look at them. Yeah, they're a lot taller than me. But now more than ever, I really notice it. Like the middle infielders. You know, because in my day, it was Jeff Kent and, and Robbie Alomar and myself. And we all were around, you know, Kent was a little taller, but we were usually in that 5'10 category. Now, guys, I mean, it's nothing for, for a second baseman to be 6'4". I look at DJ LeMahieu in, in, uh, in uh, 
New York. And I just think, well, that's kind of normal now. You know, the Dustin Pedroia's, yeah, they're still there. But but the game is changing as far as the physicality, I feel. Yeah. You remember I'm around a lot say, of young – go ahead. They used to say you outgrew the position at second or short. At oh, you get to six foot, you got to move somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know, you're right. There's no question about it. Athletes are bigger and stronger. Uh, but it is a change. But it, it's still great there's room for the Dustin Pedroia's uh, to compete and to compete well at the top level. So uh, it's still a, it's still one of the charms of the game that that can still be the case. You know, I look at the game today, and uh, I always look at it as fair-minded as I can. I'm never one of going to be one of those guys where, oh, my era was the best or – or my dad's era was the best or it's each era, each generation is different. You know, I've got a son playing in the minor leagues now. Uh, So I, I get a little, I get a little insight to, to those young players in their minds. I'll go down and watch a bit with this minor league buddies that are, that are getting ready for spring training. I'll listen to them, the new things that they're bringing into the game, all the technology that's brought in. I'm kind of envious in a lot of ways, Joe, uh, because I was with Stickler. Man, I want every piece of information you can give me and then I'll decipher it and, and use what I want to use. In our day, we're just fighting for a VCR tape and try to get it to the right point. So in, in ways, I'm envious of this generation. As far as the players go, and I know the finances have changed that a lot. I mean, these guys today are making a ton of money. I'm not complaining. My generation, we had really good paychecks, but nothing like today's game. From the time you came into the game in the late 70s with Cleveland to present, uh, if there is anything that you've seen amongst the players that has changed, what has that been? Well, I think maybe the players are a little more relaxed. Because they get long-term contracts and they don't have to worry as much about job security as they probably did, you know, in the 70s and in the early 80s uh, before long-term contracts became uh, the way of the world. I think that's a factor. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's given them that feeling of security. I think that it also creates some pressure. Guys, rather than relax, want to live up to that contract and sometimes – uh, that can put a lot of heat on them, and uh, they have to learn how to put that on the back burner and just go out and play the game. Uh, so it, it certainly has had an effect. It's had an effect in their lifestyle. No one ever says players are cheap today or are looking for a free ride. They're, they're very, very generous. And uh, I think it's not only because they make a lot of money, but I think it's because they've uh, it's part of the character that uh, you know they, they're used to being uh, giving. They used to giving, and uh, they continue to do that. I think that's very important. So, you know, the changes are certainly uh, the changes, but not necessarily for good or for worse. I think that uh, you know, basically players are the same in terms of their their attitudes and their desire to excel. I think that, that you know that helps make it a great game. And I look at the players. Uh... It, it is. It, it the game has changed, but but it's still it's still the game of baseball. I love it. I, I always think about this, you know. And and I was a critic early in in my own mind, not not from a public standpoint, but when I was coming up, and it had always been this way in the game. You really had to earn your stripes. Uh, I remember when I got to the big leagues in 1992, and I had a veteran team in Seattle. I had the Griffies and and Buners and Chris Bosio. Uh, 
and they were kind of the veteran guys that kind of kept me in check because I was a young brash in a very, in a very uh, tough love kind of way. I mean, they, they, they would beat me up, you know, whatever physically in the front of the bus. You don't sit in the back until you've earned it. Um, but as a rookie, man, I felt that pressure. You know, to I, I have to prove to these guys that I'm a big licker. Once I prove to them and the organization that I'm treated as such, but it was a tough road. Then I see today's style of play where it seems like I look at the young player coming to the big leagues and they're very comfortable. I think, wow, I, I was almost scared uh, in 1992 trying to prove myself. It was every day I'd come to the ballpark and it was like, oh my gosh, I got to prove to these guys that I belong. I've done everything I could in the minor leagues. Now I've got to prove it at this level. And it was no easy task. There was a lot of falling on my butt before I got to that point. I think it made me better in the long run. But looking at the way players are brought up today, they're brought up at an earlier age and are made to feel comfortable Instantly, it seems like the hazing of, of uh, my generation, the generations before me, that really doesn't go on as much. But when I really sit back and look at it, is it the smarter way to go? Is it if you have a young talent coming to the big leagues, instead of making him have to go through that tough where you've got to prove to the veterans and speak when you're spoken to, rather than today's way is make them comfortable as rookies. Is maybe that's a better way to go because it's maybe more instant gratification for an organization. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. Well, I think you're right. I think it works for some. Some are more, like to be comfortable, and maybe some others uh, need that uh, prodding and that. Uh, uh, sorry, the hazing, but you know, prove yourself to me. Uh, and I think it depends on the individual uh, more than anything. The one thing you do see today, though, is. Guys getting to the big leagues with an ERA of five or, you know, hitting 210 that you wouldn't have seen in your day. Uh, but expanded rosters, if I had, um, expansion has had a lot to do with that, but uh, that's part of it too. And, of course, the salary structure is a big reason why that happens. Uh, you don't see too many veterans uh, who would be classified as journeymen hanging around with teams that are rebuilding because of the pay structure more than anything, I think. Joe Castiglione, I appreciate you coming on the Boom Podcast. This was a lot of fun. Congratulations on the 40 years. I'll be looking forward to continuing to listen to you in the future. What an unbelievable career you've had. It's been awesome. And what we do each and every Boom Podcast, at the end of the podcast, is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast i'm dan levy thanks for listening